0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good
1: evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerota. Welcome to CNN Tonight. New legal trouble for Donald Trump, E. Jean Carroll seeking more damages in the form of more money above and beyond the first $5 million because of what Donald Trump said in the CNN town hall. And then there's the case of all those classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Apparently Donald Trump's attorney took highly detailed notes about them, notes that are now in the hands of the special counsel. Our panel dives into what those reveal. Plus Senator Tim Scott wants to be president Will he break with Donald Trump or will Trump try to make Scott his running mate? And this image exploded on Twitter this morning. It sent shockwaves through the stock market, but it's fake. There was no explosion near the Pentagon. The real world danger of artificial intelligence is not a distant worry. It's already here. But let's begin with new legal trouble for Donald Trump. Eugene Carroll's attorney today added this statement to their legal complaint, quote, Trump, Undeterred by the jury's verdict, persisted in maliciously defaming Carol yet again. She was talking about this moment in the CNN town hall.
2: But, Mr. President, Are you ready? can I ask can you And I swear I on my because... children, which I never do, I have no idea who this woman... This is a fake story, made-up story. I have no idea who the hell... She's a whack job.
1: All right, let's bring in my panel here tonight. We have a man who knows about presidents and legal trouble, John Sale, who was assistant special Watergate prosecutor. We also have our law enforcement maven, John Miller, former Republican Senate candidate Joe Pinion and reporter Sarah Ellison of The Washington Post. Also with us is CNN's Sarah Murray. Sarah Murray, let me start with you. So this is what Eugene Carroll uh, threatened to do after the CNN town hall. And today she did it.
3: That's right. I mean, she and her attorneys are saying she deserves very substantial punitive damages and as you pointed out, you know, they already went to trial uh, as part of a civil case and she was awarded 5 million dollars when the jury found that Donald Trump sexually abused and defamed her, but there was this other defamation suit that has sort of been caught in a legal logjam, so she's trying to go back asking the judge if she can amend that original complaint and seek additional damages and she pointed out as you said that Trump was undeterred by the jury's verdict in this last civil case that he's still maliciously defaming her. And she pointed to moments in that town hall, like when he says, I never saw this woman, even though, of course, we've seen a photo of them together. You know, he says this is a fake made up story and calls her a whack job to say, you know, he's continuing to defame me. So, Sarah, what's going to happen
1: next? I mean, if the judge allows this um, amendment to go through,
3: what does this mean? Well, this is another procedural step in a case that has been more delayed than what we saw in the other defamation case because her original, she originally took issue with statements when Donald Trump was president, and that has set off a raft of appeals. So, again, this is one step in the legal process, but there are some other legal issues that they need to sort out when it comes to this particular defamation suit.
1: Okay, Sarah Murray, thank you very much. Stand by. We have more questions for you. I'll bring in Sarah Ellison. Um, it's just basically what the argument is that um, Eugene's lawyer is making is that Donald Trump needs to be deterred from reckless talk. So if $5 million didn't deter him from publicly defaming Eugene, I guess they'll go back to the
4: well and try again. Exactly. And you have to remember that 3 million of those 5 million were, were for defamation, 2 million were for sexual abuse. So. More of the damages were actually for defamation the first time around, and it did not deter him at all. And so we we can bring in our lawyers later. But thank goodness for the legal system, because we're no longer in a moment where Donald Trump says what he wants and there is no repercussion. Um, The legal system is sort of caught up with him in this case. And Eugene Carroll is herself undeterred and is going to I mean, he he obviously was sort of goading. Um, the process even further by doubling down in that town hall. And everybody watched that town hall. Some people were horrified, but people were watching it on a different level and saying, this is going to be a bonanza for prosecutors and other people who are watching Donald Trump sort of have enough rope to hang himself with. Let's turn to our lawyer. John, is
1: that how well, you see it?
5: With all due respect to E.G. Carroll, this is the least of former President Trump's problems. Uh, I think it's a question of control. And he wants to control the narrative. And he sort of, he calls her things like a whack job, which is outrageous. But uh, with the Manhattan DA's case, he was able to be ahead of the curve to control public relations, put out false stories. It's not gonna happen with Jack Smith's cases. The walls are gonna close in on him. And uh, let me tell you, it is not fun to be indicted.
1: So when you say that this is the least of his problems, what's the biggest of Donald Trump's legal
5: problems? Well, I think the biggest problem is the documents case. Because ultimately, it's the attorney general who has to decide whether or not to approve an indictment. And when you have a former president, this is a big, big deal. And public, relation, public opinion does matter. And people are going to say, hey, Biden did it with documents. Pence did it. But the obstruction is different. And the obstruction, I think, is what's going to take him down. And it's, just, it's hard to believe that I'm sitting here and we're talking about the former president of the United States, the likely candidate of the Republican Party, who is going to maybe run under two or three indictments. I mean, is this real? Are we really talking about this?
1: I think it is. Yes. Let me be the first to break it to you. This is reality. What's happening right now? John, how do you see it?
6: Um, I am still a holder of the minority opinion um, that he's not going to be charged in the documents case because you have the Biden documents problem, not just presidential documents. Going back to the Senate, you have the Pence problem. You have, you know, other people, other offices, other locations. But doesn't
1: the obstruction element make a difference?
6: So it should, um, and maybe it does. But Merrick Garland, you know, has a a philosophy on you can't charge resisting arrest without charging what the arrest was for. Um, You have trouble charging an ancillary crime, the obstruction of justice, if you're not charging the original crime, which was the documents. And if you're charging the original crime... Why aren't you charging everybody else with the original crime? And I, and I say that in the context that there are other things that that special prosecutor has on his plate and other prosecutors uh, that are less complex.
1: Before we go too far down this road, let me bring Sarah Murray back because we have new reporting on this, including the documents that Trump's own attorney has. Well, somehow these documents have ended up in the hands of the special counsel, the special counsel.
3: Yeah. I mean, look, these are, are interesting because they're notes taken by Trump attorney Evan Corcoran, and they're at a critical point. I mean, Donald Trump has received this subpoena in May of 2022. The government is saying, you have to give us back any documents with classified markings. And sources are telling us that Donald Trump then goes to his attorney and says, you know, is there any way we can push back on this? Essentially, what kind of recourse do we have here? And this is memorialized in these notes that Evan Corcoran took at the time. You know, People can look at this and say, look, this is the former president just speaking to his attorney and trying to figure out what his options are moving forward. But obviously we've seen Donald Trump offer offer a number of shifting explanations for why he kept and retained these documents for so long. He said in that CNN town hall that he had the absolute right to keep them. And we know that prosecutors are looking at a potential obstruction case. And, And as part of this, they have dozens of pages of these notes from Evan Corcoran memorializing his conversations with the former president. But Sarah, isn't there attorney-client privilege? I mean, isn't this simply Donald Trump talking to his attorney? There is attorney-client privilege, but what what happened here is there was this court fight, this sealed court fight behind closed doors in which prosecutors said, look, we need access to these notes and convinced a judge that there was sufficient evidence that Donald Trump used his attorney in furtherance of a crime. And so it kind of allows you to pierce that attorney-client privilege shield. That's why we saw Evan Corcoran have to hand over these notes. And they do have some significant redactions in them and also to speak to, to prosecutors. And so uh, prosecutors were able to convince at least a judge that there was enough there. Again, we don't know if all the evidence they got, if what they got from these notes backs up the theory, backs up what they were able to put before a judge to get her to, to grant them access to all of this. We'll have to wait and see. Okay, Sarah, stand by if you would. Joe, how do you see all of this?
2: Uh, well, look, there, there are clearly brilliant legal minds at the table who can help you deal with the legal minutiae of this I just think that when we're dealing with these issues, it's clearly more than just the letter of the law. It's also the spirit of the law and as it relates to public opinion. I tend to agree with you that the documents case is booby-trapped. It is booby-trapped because of the issues that are presented to President Biden, not just when he was the vice president, but also when he was So you
1: don't draw the distinction between the obstruction. You think just because president, well, Vice President look, Pence I, I, and I, Biden I, had documents, I, it's booby-trapped. I,
2: I don't think that we should be poo-pooing obstruction of justice, uh, certainly not from the individual who occupied the Oval Office. So let me just begin there, but I will say that if we're going to have a conversation about how do these things proceed, uh, it's going to be a very difficult day within the legal corridors if we end up in a situation where by virtue of piercing client privilege uh, for the President of the United States, they're able to bring a case against him. At that point, No one is safe. And so I just think that we should tread lightly here. Yes, we should be uh, vigorous in our pursuit of the truth and trying to figure out exactly what transpired here. But I think the notion that we would completely uh, put to the side uh, the type of precedent that could potentially set in the minds of the American people, again, America, more than just words on paper, a promise we make to our citizens and to the world, I I think that that's something we should not take lightly. John
1: Sale?
5: The very Constitution that Mr. Trump wanted to suspend will protect him. But Attorney-client privilege is sacred. When a client talks to me, I don't want anybody to know about that. I want it to be candid. But the crime-fraud exception, which means you cannot use attorney-client privilege to perpetrate a crime or a fraud. And in a rare case where a judge finds that that's the case, then it's pierced. And the notes, the conversations can be told to the grand jury. But one important thing we lose sight of, that testimony can just as likely exonerate the president as it could convict him. Like the Watergate tapes, they could have cleared President Nixon as well as incriminated. But
1: how, in this case, could it exonerate Donald Trump?
5: If the president says, which he's allowed to do to his lawyer, hey, look, what are my options? And if the lawyer says, well, Mr. President, you were the executive branch, you have all sorts of powers, you can declassify, he has what's called an advice of counsel defense. He doesn't have the criminal intent that you need to commit a crime. But if on the other hand, if those notes reveal, hey, Mr. President, once you have a subpoena, you're not above the law. Like everyone else in this country, you must turn over everything. Well, then there is a case there, which if Jack Smith recommends you go on that case, I don't think the attorney general is going to overrule that recommendation.
1: OK, friends, thank you very much for all the expertise. Oh, really great th- to have this me. conversation. All right, next, Senator Tim Scott is diving into the presidential candidate pool. Our panel has a lot of thoughts next. Senator Tim Scott kicking off his presidential campaign today, taking aim at what he calls the radical left.
5: Joe Biden and the radical left are attacking every single rung of the ladder that helped me climb. And that's why I'm announcing today that I'm running for president of the United States
3: of America.
1: My panel is back with me. Also joining us is Kierna Mayo, former editor-in-chief of Ebony Magazine. So Kierna, um... I listened to his uh, announcement speech. We'll play a little bit more of it later. It sounds like he is running as an alternative to Donald Trump if you like the conservative policies but don't want the baggage. How do you see it?
7: Uh, Perhaps. I mean, I think he's a decent guy, which makes him an outlier at this point. (laughs) But um, when someone says that they are going to go from cotton to Congress, that's cringy. There's a piece about him that, for me... You know, I'm not a black Republican. We can talk to the black Republican at the table and get his take. But I have to say trading on the thing that you say you don't trade on is fraudulent. This is what the race card is. So when you come out and you make the case about how poor, how much poverty, your single black mother... Why can't that
1: just be his life story?
7: That is his life story, but he traffics it. He trades in that. So that's the beginning and the end. That's how you must know me. But Don't call a thing a thing. Don't name a thing by its name. I think that's what the big problem is, really, most times when certainly black people in mass are critical of black Republicans. Specifically, many times it has to do with um, not the politic, but the unwillingness to name white supremacy, the unwillingness to name the legacy that created the cotton situation. We can talk about Congress, but why aren't we talking about the cotton where are your politics? Where is the legislation? Where is he when it comes to the books that are being banned? To the abortions? that, Like, we talk about him in this kind of hopefully optimistic space. If I need an abortion tomorrow in South Carolina, I don't feel very optimistic. So there's some fundamental issues that I have with him, although he seems like a, a lovely person. Joe?
2: Well, look, uh, I think, obviously... We start off by recognizing that President Trump has a stranglehold on the base. We start off with the realization that the poll numbers indicate that most people uh, don't have a snowball chance in trying to secure the nomination. But it's early days. uh, I I think that this is far from your typical primary uh, proceeding. So when you look at where they have to go, uh, they have to, even with Ron DeSantis, close a 30-point national gap, right? Even on a state-by-state basis, many people are lagging. So uh, if we're talking specifically about uh, Tim Scott, I think that, again, he has tried to kind of thread this needle. Uh, I would remind people that he had put forth a Justice Act that Democrats summarily dismissed. I remind people that he has tried to talk about his own experiences as a black man being a member uh, of the United States Senate, uh, being called on TV everything but a child of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, one person actually saying that he would be the slave that Harriet Tubman left behind on a major network? Who said that? Uh, uh, Tiffany. Well, we don't know oh, Tiffany. Oh, yeah. a different era. Different era. What right. you're saying? Right. So uh. I, I wanted to make
1: sure it wasn't just like you know, Twitter. Right?
2: No, no, no.
7: Well, no. He also campaigned platform. for Strom. Oh, look, government.
2: so i mean, I'll, 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 I'll I'll say this, right? I, I think that at the end of the day, there is such a thing as can the man meet the moment. I think that what gets left off often is the third M, uh, which is the message, right? And I think that sometimes you can have. The man that is right for the moment and the message that is not right for the moment. And I Mm. think in this particular time, when we have such uh, really uh, divisive fisticuffs happening in our national body politics, I don't know if there is a lane for him to win the nomination. And I don't think that there is enough oxygen in the room for us to have that type of conversation. Mm. But I do think, I think to your point, look... uh, We've listened to Barack Obama talking about we don't have a white America or a black America. We have the United States of America. We've listened to people say, uh, you know, whether we're talking about Jesse Jackson or Barack Obama, uh, that hands that pick cotton, will pick this election. So I think it's not the actual message. It is the legacy of the party some people have a difficult time wrestling with, which makes the message dead on arrival, which I think brings us back to that main point. It is man. It is the moment, but it's also the message and how all three of those things work together.
4: Sarah? I thought it was interesting how Donald Trump welcomed him into Mm -hmm. the race. He sort of very warmly welcomed him into it and then trashed Ron DeSantis again. So he clearly doesn't see him as a threat. Um, Does he see him as a possible running mate? Yes. I mean... I have is that no. how you interpreted a, that welcoming it's a, message? It's a potential. Mm-hmm. I think that that is something that he is sort of leaving that as an opening. Um, I don't think he's decided anything at this point, but it certainly is not somebody that is threatening to Donald Trump. And he would like to have that as an option. It would certainly be a way for him to sort of um, widen, maybe broaden some of his appeal, which was really pretty Burnt at the end
5: of
2: the. I I, I would behoove uh, President Trump, if he is a nominee, to pick a woman. Uh, he needs to pick a woman. The biggest problem that Republicans are going to have up and down the ballot, particularly as it relates to uh, the proliferation of some of the laws that we've seen across this country related to abortion, is uh, with women, suburban women in particular. Uh, so, if we're looking at the trends here, yes, we do have black men who are trending towards the Republican Party. Uh, certainly, black women are uh, stepping uh, aside and waiting that out. But certainly, we see movement with black men. But that's not going to be why President Trump uh, gets reelected. That's not going going to be why the Republican Mm -hmm. nominee uh, gets elected as the 47th president. It'll happen if we find more oxygen with female voters.
1: Here's to Joe's point. Um, You know, Donald Trump did better, um, John, with black voters in 2020 than he did in 2016. And when you compare him to other Republican um, candidates, uh, for instance, Mitt Romney got 6 percent of black voters to Donald Trump's 12 in 2020. John McCain got 4 percent. George W. Bush got 11 percent. Um, Let's listen just to a little bit more of what Tim Scott said today in his announcement.
5: That's why I'm the candidate the far left fears the most. You see, when I cut your taxes, they called me a prop. When I refunded the police they called me a token. When I pushed back on President Biden, they even called me the n-word. I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. The truth of my life disrupts their lies.
1: Your thoughts?
6: So confusing. I mean, we start with he is most definitely an outlier because he's the single black member of the U.S. Senate that could run for president. But when you listen to his message between the visual cues and the words, him invoking the cadence at one point of Martin Luther King, um, talking about whether it's going to be grievance or greatness, talking about the Republican Party as the complainers or, you know, make America great again. Um, At the same time, uh, you know, he's talking about a party who far and away, according to polls, favors a guy who is literally having dinners at Mar-a-Lago with an avowed white supremacist who's pushing the Proud Boys, who's friends with the Oath Keepers. Um, So you're looking at this event today, and you're literally trying to figure out who's talking and what's going on. Uh, It'll it'll take, as as Mr. Pinion said, it'll take some message decoding for people, uh, or it could just turn into an alibi for Donald Trump uh, as a running mate.
1: Thank you all. Really great to get all of your perspectives. All right, next, the man charged in the subway chokehold death of Jordan Neely is speaking out. He says he would do it over again. The man charged with second-degree manslaughter in the chokehold death of Jordan Neely on the New York subway is speaking out. Daniel Penny tells the New York Post that race was not a factor in his decision to put Jordan Neely in a fatal chokehold. He says, quote, this had nothing to do with race. I judge a person based on their character. I am not a white supremacist. I mean, it's a little bit comical. Everybody who's ever met me can tell you. I love all people. I love all cultures. You can tell by my past and all my travels and adventures around the world. I was actually planning a road trip through Africa before this happened. I'm back with my panel. Um, Okay, Sarah. Your thoughts on listening to him speaking out publicly and trying to defend himself?
4: My first impression of that was that you are not serving your client well by giving this interview to the New York Post. If you want your client to get a full hearing, you go to CNN, you go to the New York Times, you go to the Washington Post. The New York Post is, I think what you choose if you want to play into the culture war that this case has become. You're sort of trying to turn him, a a relatively, I think, naive person, into a sort of totem against, you know, in a sort of, in your sort of fake race war about this case, it is just a tragic case of someone being killed on the subway. Um, And I don't think that his attorneys are naive, and I think they know what they're doing, and I think that Giving this interview to the New York Post, of all places, spoke volumes. It's really interesting because you call, you said he, that he's a fairly
1: naive person. And I think the reason that you're saying that is because we I think he has said he doesn't watch TV. He's not on social media. He doesn't sort of have his finger on the pulse of some of this is what he's trying to say, I think.
4: He doesn't know who Al Sharpton is. He says he was going to go on a road trip through Africa before this started. This is not somebody who's like plugged into the current conversation mm-hmm. about what's happening around him.
1: Um, Kieran, here's what his attorney has said regarding the incident itself. Danny was protecting himself and everyone on that train, but what gets lost is that at the time he acted to defend those people, he put his own life and well being on the line. He had no way of knowing if he would be hurt or killed. He acted anyway by putting the well being of everyone on that train above his own. It didn't matter what race or religion, he acted to protect them all. That's his attorney. I guess we just don't have enough information. We don't. To know we if don't.
7: It's certainly sure. not enough to presume that he's naive. I, I, I don't know what we'd really fully base that on, um, uh, what we do know is that an unarmed Black man was in a chokehold for 15 minutes from behind, and it it just reeks of this kind of extrajudicial killing that happens whenever white people feel like they have to be a hero and save the day. Uh, We don't know. We will find out, theoretically, once this trial happens, what really went down, for anyone that's been on the subway in New York, I grew up here my whole life, been riding the train since I was 10 years old, there's always that guy. There's always the Michael Jackson impersonator. There's always someone who's off. I'm not saying that this person wasn't threatening in any way, but there are so many options that most New Yorkers make, millions of us every single day when we encounter someone who's off on the subway. So this was a leap that this guy made. This is someone who's coming from the Marines. This is someone who, according to the New York Post, lives in Long Island and surfs in Long Island. Like, I can, not to profile, but to profile, I can tell you that this is shady. But so, what do you
1: mean? You mean that you what part is shady?
7: The, because there's a, new, there's a New York Post, Long Island surfer person who actually does see that person as a black person. I really do wonder, would this person's fate have been the same if they weren't in a black body? We'll never know the answer. It's just me as a black person. I have to ask that question. It, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't, add up.
1: It here's doesn't his, add up. Here's what Jordan Neely's family says about this attorney's statement. Quote, this is an advertisement to soften the public's view of Daniel Penny, who choked Jordan Neely to death. We never called him a white supremacist. We called him a killer. We don't care how many vacations he's been on. We want to know why he didn't let go of that chokehold until Jordan was dead. John, that seems like the most pertinent question. Mm -hmm. Why Why was he in the chokehold for so long?
6: Well, first of all, we don't really know how long it was because... Nobody has that time. We was know. there
1: 15 minutes? Was there a 15-minute videotape? Why do we think it Why was 15 we, minutes? The, the
6: videotape starts in a minute, and the videotape gets, I think, about four minutes of this. But what we don't have is an accurate time about how long before the videotape. The videotape starts outside the train through the window and then comes in and runs for the part of it that the person with the camera um, recorded. So there's the timepiece. But I, I, think, I think there's also the irrelevant... To the timepiece, which is um, in a world where I'm just reflecting on his statements about I'm not on social media, I don't pay it. But I mean, you had to be living under a rock not to have seen the George Floyd death, which was entirely on videotape, or to be um, a New Yorker who's unfamiliar with Eric Garner, um, who was in a chokehold for far fewer, um, you know, minutes than George Floyd, or in this case, to understand that. People can die from that. Now, the flip side is, as a Marine, he was trained in using a chokehold to render people unconscious, Um, so we have to figure out from him and testimony later what effect training had in it, what he thought was going to happen. But the New York Post article, um, uh, I agree, was to soften his image, calculated. I don't think it was a giant miscalculation by going to the Post, because... What you calculate is if only The Post has it, all the other media outlets will use the things that The Post used. In The New York Times, you might have a very different approach to the same story, maybe much less friendly. Uh, but clearly what they're anticipating is our client's going before 23 people on a grand jury at some point, And we would like them to meet him earlier um, in a light that we can cast. They should just note for the record that the trip to Africa means nothing. Well, I, why I, mention it?
7: Quick, quickly, John.
6: I, I just think again.
2: One, I understand why the Neely family is frustrated. Uh, that Jordan Neely has become a political football. Uh, that we had members of Congress screaming about a lynching before we had even known the name of the assailant. So I just think that, yes, cooler heads need to prevail. Uh, He has a right to try to defend himself, to try to say that I am not the hateful person. No, the Neely family hasn't said that, but other voices within our public uh, discourse have suggested as much. So you can't ignore the racial component, the legacy of racism in this nation, the fact that uh, New York City itself has that component from the, uh, the case that we have saw with Eric Garner from the cases that we've seen uh, all across this country. So, yes, those are all things to consider. But at the end of the day, uh, this is going to come down to the letter of the law. Yeah. Was the whole justified for the length of time? Which, to your point, we still don't even know the full length of time at this juncture.
1: OK, thank you all very much. Next, we're shifting gears. What's up with our teenagers today? They're less likely to drink or have sex... They're also less likely to get their driver's licenses and a paid job. Is all this good or bad? My panel debates it next. (laughs) We'll talk about it. Montana is the latest state to tighten social media restrictions. The state's governor signing a bill that completely bans TikTok. TikTok is now suing Montana. So, what is social media doing to children and teenagers? Is it postponing them growing up? CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta recently spoke with a psychologist and author who says today's 12th graders are now more like eighth graders from previous generations. My panel is back with me. John Miller, let me just tell you what's happening here. So, today's teenagers are less likely to get their driver's licenses. Why bother? Okay. They, don't, they can take Uber. They don't need it. They don't need that independence. They're less likely to go out with their friends. They're less likely to drink alcohol and have sex. They're less likely to have a paid job. Is all this good or bad that they're delayed in these things that previous generations of teenagers were not?
6: So the youth is clearly going to hell in a handbasket. That's basket. what I hear, yes. <laughs> but um, I think you touched on it, which is, you know... I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. You know, all my friends in high school, like, on the stroke of midnight at their birthday, drove to a a DMV, you know, office to wait for the lights to come on. But, you know, uh, everybody's riding an e-bike now. You know, everybody's got Uber. Uh, You know, city kids, particularly in, you know, Manhattan and Queens... You know, they hardly ever get around to a car because they've been riding the subway since they could That's walk. That's true, but, yeah.
1: but there's something about independence. There's something about independence, in whether or not these kids are sort of fully launching. This but I mean, there's all the
6: other shifts. Um, you know, if they're not drinking, are they smoking weed? Are they getting mixed messages that it's legal? Um, you well, know, I have the answer, and Sean. socially acceptable.
1: Okay, here we go. But this is just from 10 mm. years ago. So um, having sex. 10 years ago, 47% of high school students reported yes. Now, 10 years later, at 2021, only 30%. Um, currently sexually active, 34% in 2011, now 21%. Currently drink alcohol, 39% was in 2011. 23% 10 years later. Currently using marijuana, 23% back then, 16% now. Ever using illicit drugs, 19% back then, 13%
7: now. So
6: it's not a switch to alternatives. This is a downturn.
7: It's because gathering spaces are virtual. The places where we meet now are not physical. You can't have sex if we're not in the same room. It's hard to smoke a joint and pass it if we're not together. So I really do think that that speaks for a lot of what we're seeing here. Is it good or bad? Well, but the, the, we were talking about this early. I do think that that kind of arrested development is net bad. Like it's, not, it's not a positive not to be independent, not to crave independence, not to test independence. I think, um, you know, an eighth grader, a, a 12th grader who's functioning like an eighth grader socially has some growing up to do. And then there's life that's going to kick in real fast. And you don't want certain experiences to be... The first time they happen at college, where you have fully grown adults and other people. Like I just, I agree with what you were saying earlier that high school is the place to work out the kinks, and it's unfortunate that kids aren't able to do it as much. Of course, we don't want them.
1: I mean, it's drinking and it's drugging. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not saying, like yeah. I'm line, not like but at least pro. they're under your roof in high school, yeah. usually. Whereas in college, they're they're you know out on cast out on their own. Do You have teenagers or younger, Sarah.
4: Ten and fourteen. Okay, thoughts. My thought is that the important detail here is that there's, there are these um, huge rates of depression and anxiety mm. among teenagers. And especially we've, we've been all reading the same CDC um, stats about that among girls. And I have two girls. And so it would be fine if they were deciding to be like clean living and like walking everywhere instead of getting in a car. And happy. And, you know, but it's not. It's sort of this the overlay of living on your screen and watching everybody else who is doing everything more interestingly than you are on a better vacation, has more friends. All that kind of stuff is sort of the the, like the negative feedback loop. Um, I feel like I walk through lots of clouds of weed in my neighborhood and i feel like a lot of kids are smoking i don't know i don't know maybe are I'm kids a, or are they adults i mean well, it's probably more both. people I
1: think are it's smoking weed for sure yeah. but i don't know if they're necessarily teenagers well
2: i think that you know i worked in nonprofit healthcare for about 10 years we we started a grant program to give children uh more access to resources to be able to pay for college because we found uh that yes kids might be choosing a school we thought were great but in reality uh, they were only choosing it because they couldn't afford the comforter. They couldn't afford the winter coats. And so kids from the outside can look like they're making all the right decisions for the wrong reasons. And so when we ask ourselves, why are all these numbers going down? They're having less like, sex. Why? Because more and more of them don't want to have children, don't see the point in having children in this wild and crazy world that we are leaving for is them.
1: Is that what teenagers are thinking, or is that 20-somethings and 30-somethings? I
2: think it's the kids as well. I think if you, if you talk to those children, I think also, to your point, what is up? The depression is up. The isolation is up. The epidemic of loneliness is sweeping across this nation. So, yes, some numbers that we previously thought were the greatest threat to their happiness are down, but there are new emerging threats to their happiness, to their well-being, and not just their well-being, but the country, that are the unaddressed residual re- uh, residue of what happens in a second decade of a tech revolution, which we have not actually addressed. We, and then, and, if you, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, but I, I think to your point also, again, the people that make... The technology—they're
6: the ones who are asking for less screen time for their own children, even totally. if they're thrusting exactly. upon them. Let me look at the sheer irony of this. You know, they have all these devices; they're surrounded by them all day. They're in touch with everybody, and this is when loneliness is in- increasing. Mm-hmm. This is where bullying has been redefined—not uh, being punched in the face, uh, but being taken out of the flock or excluded from a group or talked about in front of a mass audience. Um, it's a uh, it's very different.
1: It is. It is. And troubling, certainly, to be living your life on social media instead of in somebody's basement.
8: I mean,
6: the idea <laughs> that Doing people can't have a conversation, we say, <laughs> well, why don't you call her and talk to her? And right. they say, I'll text. That's right. It's like, that's not going to work.
1: Thank you, friends, very much. Much more to talk about on that. I'm sure we will. Meanwhile, an AI-generated fake image that seemed to show an explosion at the Pentagon Appeared on multiple verified Twitter accounts. It sparked a brief dip in the stock market. It wasn't true. This didn't happen. Is this what the future of AI holds? That's next. A fake image making the rounds on Twitter this morning. It showed up on one account that falsely claimed it was associated with Bloomberg News. And then to add to the confusion, many of the accounts tweeting that this image had a verified blue check mark, but those can now be bought with a monthly payment. So this was an image of an explosion or a fire at the Pentagon. And then the stock market took a brief dip moments after this fake image, let me be clear, fake, began circulating on Twitter. It even made its way on air at a major Indian TV network, which eventually retracted that report. I'm back with Sarah Ellison and John Miller. So everything we've been fearing about AI... Or deep fakes or whatever—it's happening. It's already here. We we fear. We thought maybe it would be in the future or in the near future. No, it's happening right now. And anybody can make these, and they show up in
4: you know on news accounts. It just happened. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that that's um, it's a it's a call for human intelligence for people who are going to be able to vet images for people to not. I mean, it sort of goes against everything that we've been living in, which is like. A news cycle that responds immediately. Um, You know, obviously this is something that you can't tell the difference if you're seeing something on Twitter. We talk all the time about um, social media platforms. Every story is flattened. You can't tell where it comes from or who is producing it. This is a perfect case in point.
1: Uh, If we have to rely on
4: critical thinking,
1: we're in trouble.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this, this harkens back to the old, you know, Chicago City News Service motto, which is, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> and you know what? What fooled us here were some of the things that um, uh, news media synapses fire on, which is okay. It's on Twitter. Everybody reacts, but where on Twitter? It's coming from, uh, you know, Reuters or Bloomberg, Bloomberg or somewhere. Or, yeah. It's coming from Bloomberg, but it's a verified Twitter account. So verified. That means none of this stuff means anything anymore. Right. Because Elon Musk, you know, got rid of most of those blue checks that say verified. It wasn't a real Bloomberg account. Um, so all of the things that that gave people comfort, which is there's probably something here. A close look at the photograph, you know, tells you that's not even the Pentagon. Uh, but, you know, the spread of these things is faster than the time it takes to check it out. You know, here at CNN and, you know... I often complain and tangle with these people. We have a very rigorous system.
1: Vetting process, vetting yes, we process, do, before you know. anything goes on air.
6: So, I mean, in, in this case, that is our friend.
1: Absolutely. And, I mean, I think that it's going to be, it's sort of up to us to educate people that there, you have to go to a news source that has a vetting process, because it's now the Wild West. It's always been the Wild West, but truly on Twitter now you cannot distinguish. I mean, the,
4: the fear that, that I have about you know, in AI-generated images that people—you literally cannot believe what you see—and people already are suffering from a massive crisis of trust in institutions, certainly in media. Um, and this is a this is the kind of moment where people will throw up their hands and say, "You can't trust anything. Nothing matters." And it's painful to be a member of the news media and and hear that already. And this is just going to exacerbate. That's right. The
6: extension of that, which is we're going into the political season.
4: Absolutely. Where
6: the deep fakes by political tricksters, but forget them, by foreign governments who we've seen dabble in election frauds before, um, are going to be out there. And then in cases where we, legitimate news media, uncover some scandal, some tape, some moment caught on video, the first thing that the offender is going to say when it's real is, that's a deep fake, that's AI, that's, right. that's yes. a fraud. Yeah. So we it's are going really into troubling. a very confusing time.
1: Yes, we are. And it's up to us to continue to educate everybody about what our vetting process is and what the real rules are. Thank you guys very much. Uh, Coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories they're working on for tomorrow, including the talks between President Biden and Republicans on the debt ceiling. Will they avert disaster this week? Thank you. Everybody calm down. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here with me. We have Harry Enton, Erica Hill making her debut, Polo Sandoval and Kylie Atwood. Also joining us remotely is Melanie Zenona. So tonight... President Biden and Speaker McCarthy were at the White House trying to negotiate a deal on the looming debt limit deadline. That date is June 1st. And if an agreement cannot be reached by then, experts warn of a global recession that could take years to recover from. So let's get right to Melanie, who has reporting on the behind the scenes talks. Melanie, what's happening at this hour?
9: Yeah, Allison, I just literally dashed over from the Capitol. And as we speak, representatives for the White House and the Speaker's Office are meeting. And Kevin McCarthy told us earlier today that they are going to work through the night to try to hammer hammer out a deal or at least get closer to a deal because they have been very far apart. In fact, we did see boxes of pizza and insomnia cookies being wheeled into the speaker's (laughs) office. So that's how you know they are digging in for a long night. But just the fact that they are talking, that they are still committed to getting a deal is a positive sign because this weekend we saw a huge setback. It was pretty tumultuous. There's a lot of heated rhetoric Uh, And Kevin McCarthy emerged from his one-on-one meeting with Biden, striking a pretty optimistic tone. Let's take a listen to that sound.
6: I felt we had a productive uh, discussion. We don't have an agreement yet, but I I did feel the discussion was productive in areas that we have differences of opinion. I believe we can still get there. I I believe we can get it done.
9: So some very cautious optimism, I would say there. But look, today was a reset, a much needed reset. And sometimes in these high stakes negotiations, everyone just needs to cool off, take a step back before they can come back to the table. But I will say there's a lot of issues to work through and not a lot of time to get it done. But we'll see what they do tonight, Allison.
1: Yeah. I mean, if uh, an insomnia cookie can't reset, I don't know what can. (laughs) Um, But but before we bring in the panel, let's turn to uh, Representative George Santos. Melana, I understand you have some new reporting. Yeah. So you might remember that last week, House Democrats tried to force
9: a floor vote on a resolution to expel Santos from Congress. And all of his Republican colleagues helped to stop that effort by instead of voting on the resolution, they were voted to refer it to the House Ethics Committee, essentially a delay tactic. But I'm told that George Santos was going around today giving out thank you letters to all of his Republican colleagues that helped spare him, at least for now. I want to read you Part of that thank you letter, he said, I want to personally thank you for your support in referring the vote for my expulsion resolution to the Ethics Committee. This has been an especially difficult time in my life, and I want to serve my constituents the best I can. Now, more than ever, the Republican majority needs to stick together, and you demonstrated great dedication and courage by putting differences aside to allow the proper process to play out. Now, We'll see how long that goodwill lasts because the House Ethics Committee is looking at this. And Kevin McCarthy said, if they determine that he broke the law or did something wrong and that he deserves to be expelled, they're going to fall through on that. Allison.
1: Okay, Melanie, stand by because I do want to bring in my panel for uh, everything we've talked about thus far. Okay, so there's a lot happening actually this week, Erica. (laughs) There's
10: a, <laughs> first night on the show, and you put me right on the spot. Uh-huh. That's why we're such good friends. Um, there is a lot happening. What's fascinating to me is not just the cookies and the pizza because those are. So, those are important signs that we should be looking at a progress. But the fact that we're still here, and there is this sense that, oh, it's going to get done, but the calendar is really not in anyone's favor, even if there's a deal tonight, they can still do it, right? If there's a deal tonight, yeah, we still have time, right? If there's a deal tonight, they still have time. But if you look at the legislative process that has to play out, this is scary. And, and I and I wonder how much people are grasping this as you try to wrap your head around it, right?
8: Go ahead. I, I, I'm not sure we fully do grasp it, in part because we've been here so many times before. And how many times, you know, the old line, there have been... You know, as many debt ceiling crises as there have been summer Olympics over the last decade or so. And we've been there that many times and every single time we seem to pull ourselves out of it. So I think that gets to your point. Maybe this time will be different. But now, as you know, they're eating their cookies and their pizza and everything else a kindergartner could possibly dream of. Uh, you know, maybe once again, the idea that they'll come up with a deal magically out of nowhere seems to oh, be look, very much. I the think table. there is a boy who
1: cried wolf. um uh, quality to these things, for sure. And I'm always on the lookout for it. But I've been cautioned time and again, Kylie, this time it's different.
11: Yeah, I think it is different. I mean, just because, as you guys were saying, we're so close. I mean, you had the Secretary of the Treasury right to congressional leadership today expressing again how close we actually are. But what struck me also from what McCarthy said when he came out of the White House today was how complimentary he was of the White House negotiators. And I think that that's significant because what it demonstrates is that there's a bit of trust that's being built. Mm -hmm. And we know that in Washington, trust is really a deficit right now. And that's something that they're going to have to build if they're going to actually get anywhere tonight in the next Mm -hmm. few days. That's why it's so good to have you, the tea leaf readers, on. Because, like, (laughs) that
1: he's changed his tone, that there are insomnia cookies to regular people. These aren't big signs of progress, but we know that they are. And
12: for McCarthy, it's certainly going to be a test for him, right? I mean, he still has a lot to prove. He's still out of the gate. So on the issue of trust, this is going to be an opportunity for him to um, really show whether or not he can hold on to that trust for his fellow Republicans.
1: Harry, I'm told you have some important numbers for us.
8: Yes, I, I have some numbers. You know, we were talking, there's all this stuff about Trump and the classified investigations that are that is sort of going on at yes. this particular point. Yep, yep. And so I think we have some interesting numbers there which sort of delve into um, essentially what's going on there. And, and what, what's fascinating to me in terms of Trump and the classified documents is the American public, overwhelmingly, if you know, we pull up the numbers, what we essentially see is that when it comes to classified documents, do so they believe there should be criminal charges? We see, look at this, 54% of Americans believe that uh, Trump should, in fact, uh, face uh, charges, criminal charges for his handling of the classified documents after leaving office. And also, there are all these different investigations that we have going on, right? And so to me, I I think it's very interesting that what we also see when it comes to all of these different criminal charges that are essentially perhaps in the air for Trump, uh, what we see, you know, should he in fact be allowed to run for president in this 2024 cycle? Look at this. 57% of Americans believe that, in fact, Trump should be disqualified Mm. from running in 2024. Just 38% of Americans believe he should be allowed to run. But here's the key nugget, Allison. It's always the key nugget. What about Republicans? What do they think about all of this stuff? And what we see here, you know, should we in fact rally around Trump or should we try and find somebody new? Look at this 68% of Republicans believe uh, that the GOP must support him versus just 26% of Americans, uh, Republicans, excuse me, who believe he should step aside. So this big sort of break between what Republicans think and what the American public thinks on this.
11: That's pretty fascinating. It's not altogether surprising, though, right? I mean, this is the reality that we see play out in these primaries. You know, we heard today from Tim Scott, who's announcing that he's running for president officially, and he said that he believes that he is, you know, essentially— the most threatening candidate to the Democrats. But does that matter in a primary? Like, we're coming up into a period for what matters in the primary is what the Republican voters or what the Democratic voters on the Democratic side are looking for. And as you were saying, I mean, we've seen them all rally around Trump up until this point.
1: I mean, those thirty-eight, that 38 percent that you just showed us who think that he can run, that's who... That's exactly his base. I mean, that's exactly the people who vote for him.
10: And to your point, Kylie, when when we talk about primaries, that's what's important, right, is the base. It's who who shows up for primaries. It's not all voters. In fact, a number of Americans don't. Some Americans can't vote in primaries. Mm -hmm. Depending on the state where you live, if you're a registered independent, you can't. Certain states you can. You can decide. You can pick one or the other and decide I'm going to vote in the Democratic or the Republican primary. But the reality is the most sort of zealous voters and the most engaged voters for both parties are typically who make up the majority of those who are going to go out and vote in a primary. And when we're looking at Republicans, those tend to be folks who are most energized for Donald Trump or his brand of politics.
8: I was fascinated. You you brought up Tim Scott. I was fascinated by his announcement today Mm. because I thought it was out of a different era. I felt like I was 12 years old again watching George W. Bush running in 2000, this sort of compassionate conservatism, our best days are ahead of us. And if you look at the polling, what in fact is most Republicans believe our best days are behind us. Make America great again. So I just view all of this. And, I, you know, I view this with the, you know, the Trump scandals and the idea that all these guys are trying to run against him. And at first, you know, I'm saying, oh, my God, all these guys are trying to run against him. This shows how weak he is. But in fact, I think it shows how weak Ron DeSantis is, who has dropped, you know, 10, 15 points in the polls over the last few months. So now it's thinking, I'm going to be the Trump alternative. Meanwhile, Trump's in that corner. Oh, the water's just fine, guys. (laughs) Come on in. Yes, divide that anti-Trump vote. He's got to (laughs) be laughing himself to sleep tonight. All right. Thank you all very much for
1: all those perspectives. Uh, Next, should we make it easier for asylum seekers to work while they are here waiting for their court cases. Paula has been digging into what some states are begging the White House to do and what it means for all of us. That's next. We're just getting this story into our newsroom. The Secret Service is investigating a crash involving a U-Haul truck that they say collided with security barriers on the north side of Lafayette Square at 16th Street. This was just before 10 p.m. tonight. Officers with the Secret Service Uniformed Division detained the driver of this truck. Spokesman, uh, there's a spokesman there who says, quote, There were no injuries to any Secret Service or White House personnel, and the cause and manner of the crash remains under investigation. Of course, we will stay on top of this story. We will bring you any new developments. Okay. Meanwhile, the governor of New York and New York City's mayor are pleading with the Biden administration for help with the surge of migrants. They want a change in federal work rules that would allow migrants to obtain work permits, which would also help solve a labor shortage.
3: This is an issue that's affecting our economy. It's not just individuals. It's affecting us with this historic labor shortage. But at the same time, we have a historic labor shortage. We also have this unprecedented influx of individuals arriving in New York, all of them legally seeking asylum. They're eager to work. They want to work.
1: Okay, Polo is reporting on this for us. So, Polo, help us with the math here. We have a need for farm jobs, farm labor, as well as like janitorial services, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then we have an influx of people who want those jobs, of farm jobs and janitorial services, etc., And what's the problem?
12: So the argument here that we're hearing from city officials, Allison, is you have up to 70,000 asylum seekers who've arrived in New York City just the last year alone. Those are potential workers that could help when it comes to that job shortage. But the solution, it's really not that easy. In fact, in the last two weeks alone, we've seen about 10,000 people that have actually come in. And what we have heard time and time again uh, in the last year from New York City Mayor Eric Adams, and it's certainly amplified by the state's governor, Kathy Hochul, is that they are calling on the White House to expedite the process, really what it takes to be able to secure that legal work authorization, because there is no doubt, and I've heard from many of these migrants that say, well, they'll still find off-the-books employment, but that certainly doesn't come with certain protections and they're not contributing to the economy. So the argument from the locals here in New York say, well, then put them to work, expedite the process. Not really a whole lot of answers that have come yet from the White House. Why? And just,
1: Why doesn't the White House want well,
12: to do that? The short answer, it is complicated, right? I mean, ultimately, what I've heard from the Biden administration officials is it say that they are enforcing the law as it, as it is. USCIS has to process these applications in a certain way. So they're basically punting the ball to Congress, which we all know it's probably really unlikely we'll see any sort of immigration reform, but just to break down what the process is actually like, the 180-day Asylum EAD Clock, which is the process that these asylum seekers have to adhere by, they have to wait, and this is important, about 150 days after they submit their petition for asylum, before they can request that work authorization, And they cannot get their hands on that document that allows them to work for an extra 30 days. You do the math, you have the 190 days. And this is without counting the major backlogs that we've seen in the federal government, with the federal government now taking months to process this uh, because of, of, of again, because of the demand. So this is really the solution that I keep hearing time and time again by the Adams administration, by uh, Governor Hochul. And clearly they do have an agenda. Uh, the, the, the The mayor is quite upset that he only received about $30 million about two weeks mm-hmm. ago out of 350 FEMA dollars that he could have gotten. $350 million, I should say. Um, but I've also heard this from migrants. I still get texts mm-hmm. often uh, from people who want to know where they can show up to stand in line To get employment. So it really is extremely difficult. And and it's very difficult for so many people who can't, they're stuck in an unemployment limbo.
1: Absolutely. It's maddening. It's maddening on every single level, because again, this country needs them and they're here legally. So in other words, if they have come in to apply for asylum, we don't know if they'll be granted asylum, but that is the legal process until Congress changes it. So they're here legally and they have to wait six months to work, though they're needed. They need money and workers are needed. Kylie.
11: Yeah, I mean, have you have you talked to any of these migrants and actually tracked how long it takes from the day that they arrive in a city like New York until they're actually able to work? Like, it does it amount to about six months?
12: Last summer, we had an opportunity to actually speak one young man from Venezuela who came here with his family, and he used to do uh, used to do uh, construction work in, in in Venezuela. Like here, he has now had to turn go as far as traveling to Florida to help in hurricane cleanup. To try to make a few bucks there, basically scraping by to try to support his family, his wife. Is two children, and they even have a dog that they brought from Venezuela. So it does speak to the desperation, and and I don't really see a solution here anytime soon. Now, Kathy Hochul said she was in Washington a couple of days ago that they don't have a flat no from the Biden administration. But I have to tell you, we have not really seen any sort of forward momentum, because it is the idea of Eric Adams that the president has the power of the pen— Yes, any kind of executive action would probably end up in court and challenged by Republicans. But they have not seen that kind of initiative. But it, Biden's not doing things for a certain reasons. Is there
10: any Republicans? And we're talking about yeah. we're talking about New York City. And we're talking about New York right. State. Right. So we're talking about Democratic leaders. But is there any Republican support or even Republican pressure on the White House? Where this is also seen as as a helpful solution in many areas, because it's not just New York City and New York State where workers yeah. are needed.
12: It's a really good question. You really haven't heard a whole lot from Republicans in in Washington regarding the work authorization issue. Uh, the concern among many Republicans w- would be that if you do uh, uh, expedite the process, and that could potentially be a path for citizenship. Um, so there are some concerns there for, for from conservatives. But we have have heard from industry leaders, and mm. and they are. They continue to say that they can provide the five, six weeks training for entry level jobs, but they do not have that support. And when you talk about the numbers, you know, you mentioned about the farms. We do have some numbers to share just to give viewers an idea of what the governor says uh, are some of the opportunities that that could be out there. You're talking 5,000 farm jobs, far, farm jobs, according to the governor, um, in the hospitality industry and food industry as well, 4,000. And then those geni- uh, janitorial and, and housekeeping jobs, about 4,000 in all. This is just in... In, in, in New York state, we need to remind viewers that, uh, you know, I was just on the border last week and I heard over and over again that they were setting their compass for Denver, Colorado, because of the services that they provide. They provide some housing. They provide some transportation as well to the next destination. So there are many cities throughout the country that could potentially tap into this because it is now becoming clearer and clear. It is more than just a humanitarian crisis. It now has a potential economic impact as mm. well.
1: Wow. Well, thanks for explaining this maddening Catch-22 that uh, the country seems to be caught in right now.
12: And, and oh. the last, last quick thought, by the way, remember, the numbers have dropped along the border in terms of apprehensions, but the numbers we keep seeing in the cities yep. continue to climb. Know, yeah. So all it's right. an issue. It's not going, going away. Thank
1: you for all of that. Thanks okay, all meanwhile, that. the man suspected of killing four college students in Idaho appearing in court for an arraignment hearing, but Brian Koberger stood silent and the judge entered his guilty plea. Why? Erica is reporting on this story. She's going to walk us through what happened next A judge in Idaho entering not guilty pleas today on behalf of Brian Koberger, who remained silent during his arraignment. Koberger was indicted on four counts of first degree murder and one count of burglary in the stabbings of four University of Idaho students in November. There's also a new development in the case of Madeleine McCann. She is the British toddler who disappeared in Portugal in 2007. And Erica is following both these stories for us. Okay, so Erica, let's start in Idaho. Why didn't Koberger say that he, whether he was guilty or not guilty? So
10: that was sort of a big question because we did actually hear him speak in court. So the judge went through each of the charges, asked him if he understood each of these five charges. He said yes. Also asked him if he understood that anything he said in court you know, could essentially be used against him. He said, yes, I do. But he did not choose to enter a plea. His attorney said that he, he was going to stand silent. So why would he do this? I reached out to our good friend, defense attorney Joey Jackson, because I said, if anybody's all going right. to know why, there's been a lot of speculation all day. Could there be a plea deal in the works behind the scenes? Could there be some other reason that he didn't want to speak? He didn't want to say not guilty in court if they were working on something else. Joey said to me, in his, in his view, there is no legal, no practical benefit to staying silent, it's sort of strange, but it's also his right. He doesn't have to speak. He doesn't have to weigh in if he doesn't want to. So the judge could enter the plea for him. Again, there are plenty of theories. Um, you know, the other thing that, that Joey said to me, too, that I thought was sort of interesting is, who knows, maybe this guy wants people to speculate about it. Mm. Maybe that's it. You look at you know, alleged killers, alleged perhaps killers who... Have a very healthy sense of self. A they big play ego. mind games. They may want to play a mind game. Perhaps that's behind it too. But it was fascinating. It definitely getting a lot of discussion too.
8: Harry, you're perplexed. No, I just did. I, I you know, I must admit, my father was a judge, but I did. I, my understanding of the law is just not to break it, and so I, 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 I found it to be. So this could be just something where is this normal? I mean, I guess Joey. Yeah, you know, it can
10: be done. It's not. It's maybe a little odd, but. You know, there's nothing illegal about it. Right. So, you know, it is what it is. And now we sort of wait. So there's a trial scheduled for October. We also now, now the clock starts ticking. So the prosecution has 60 days. They have to say in writing whether or not they plan to seek the death penalty. Mm. So that's, you know, we'll be waiting to see on that as well.
1: Who else was in court?
10: We know the Goncava's family was in court. And we have some reporting from one of our affiliates uh, that they were really fixed on the defendant the entire time in court. He didn't really look at them, but they were there.
1: So only one of the college students families were there
10: as far as I know the gun coffees were there I haven't seen reporting about other families being there but certainly oh gosh,
1: it's, lot such, of attention. it's such a it's such a mysterious awesome. and disturbing and crazy story because it's not that often that you encounter what might be here a serial killer or psychopath and so to to study him um I mean obviously he hasn't been convicted yet but there's a lot of interest obviously who
12: has studied the matter that's right? Right. I mean, yes. given his exactly. academic history, I think yes. that's also fascinating. He was getting his Ph.D. in point, criminology. Exactly. Yeah. So does he know what's happening? Did he obviously study court proceedings as well? I, at least I could imagine he did, um, or at least browsed through a book on it. So so I think it's uh, fascinating to see if this is part of his plan or part of his defense, I should say.
11: And that's also interesting when you <laughs> propose the theory that maybe he wanted people to start talking about him not <laughs> speaking in court. If yeah. he's someone who had this criminal mind that was, you know, thinking through his different strategies for killing these, you know, these women in this awful way. I mean, maybe he was thinking about that way. Who knows? But I also think this town, I was looking it up. I mean, they hadn't had a reported um, murder on the books since 2015. Like, yes. this is a small town. It's like 20, 25, 25,000 people. I mean, the fact that this happened there, it's just, you know, we're talking about a criminal. We're talking about someone who obviously has, like, mental issues. But it, it's really, I think, struck the entire kind of nerve of the town. And the way
1: it happened. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's all so grisly. Right. And so, Gori, why don't we know more details at this point? It's been a while now. So you're right. We don't know a lot. And because
10: there was this indictment last week with a grand jury, so then we didn't see evidence really presented in court. And so we're not going to see much for some time unless this gag order is left. So the other reason we don't know a lot is because there's there's a pretty broad gag order. So there's actually a couple of hearings coming up uh, June 9th, so in a couple of weeks. So one, that will deal with... The families who are coming forward and saying, Hey, we want to be able to speak out, uh, the concomitant family. And then the media as well saying, Hey, we need to know a little bit more. So, right now, this gag order applies to the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, attorneys for the families. They can't say anything. So, we'll mm-hmm. see what the judge says at that point. So, there are two hearings on June 9th. Also, we're expected to get an answer potentially on cameras in the courtroom mm-hmm. for the trial at that hearing as well.
1: Okay, let's talk about Madeline McCann. Obviously, this is a case in 2007 that gripped the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because we've all seen her picture. We all felt so sickened by the idea that, you know, you can go away on a family vacation and your daughter is abducted. So is there new evidence? So
10: so here's what we know. So according to our reporting and, and our colleagues at CNN Portugal, there was reportedly a tip that came from Germany. So now there is a new search that is supposed to get underway really in a matter of hours, because this is going to be Tuesday morning. So there, we saw, what our colleagues saw today at the site, the police in Portugal basically setting up shop, that they are going to be doing a search of this reservoir area that's about 30 miles from where Madeleine McCann was last seen. And it's because of a tip that came from Germany. That's sort of the extent of what we know, but we also know that German police and British police will apparently be there. They won't be conducting the search, but they'll be be there sort of observing, but it will be the Portuguese authorities who are carrying this out and we're told it's going to last two days max.
1: And do we think there's still evidence there after 16 years? So the
10: fact that they're talking about a reservoir, right? You would think a reservoir, if it's water, it's been 16 years. So this same area was searched in 2008, so you may recall, divers actually did find bones. Well, those turned out to be animal remains. So what we've been told is that our colleagues in CNN in Portugal telling us this will be a search involving land not water. So same area. Again, the area was searched in 2008. But this is going to be land, so we'll see. Did they search the land in 2008 as well, I assume? Yes. So one would think, yes. but they're So they're going back. But they were very specific to say, we're looking at the land in huh. this case, not the water.
3: Hmm.
12: The question is where this tip also came from all this yes. time.
3: Weird.
10: So the fact that it came from Germany, because you may remember, too, back in 2020, there was a 45-year-old German man who had spent a number of years living in Portugal. So he was, this is Christian Bruckner, he was named as a suspect, but never charged. What was interesting is that there were some charges related to several other separate cases that did involve sexual offenses in Portugal over the years. But again, he's never been charged in this case. He's maintained his innocence, says he has no involvement here, but it does raise questions that it was a German man. A tip came from Germany. Could these things be related? I mean, at this point, 16 years later, every little nugget you're wondering if there's a connection
1: yes and everybody just wishes that the authorities had acted faster i mean just sooner to to do all this the fact that we're still here 16 years later um erica thank you very much for the update keep us posted please on that story just ahead cnn a cnn exclusive with paul whalen the american who is wrongfully detained in russia kylie is going to explain the developments for us next American Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine, wrongfully detained in Russia for more than four years, speaks to CNN in a rare interview from a remote prison camp about 200 miles outside of Moscow. He tells CNN he fears being left behind again if an agreement is made for the release of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who was detained two months ago. Despite his concerns, Whelan's tone was optimistic.
0: I have been told that I won't be left behind, and I have been told that although Evan's case is a priority, mine is also a priority, and people are cognizant of the fact that um, this is having a uh, extremely negative impact on me and my family. And uh, I'm told that the government is working tirelessly to get me out of here and to um, get me home so they can then focus effort on um, Evan and his case.
1: Kylie has more on this exclusive interview
11: for us. So, Kylie, can you tell us about this call and can you tell us how it came about? Yeah, so Jennifer Hansler, who's our reporter at the State Department, works with me, you know, incredibly closely on tracking these stories. She's really close with the family of Paul Whelan. And over the course of the number of years that he's been wrongfully detained in Russia, more than four and a half years now, he's actually called her. This is the third time he's called her from prison. And he's able to, you know, call his family a few times a week. And then every once in a while, he picks up the phone and gives her a call Um what we don't know exactly is if behind the scenes the Russians in the prison are, you know, allowing these phone calls to go through or not allowing them to go through, because I do think that um, it wouldn't be outside of bounds to assume that russians who are monitoring an american who's detained in russian prison are monitoring very closely who he's calling so you know maybe there's a motivation the russians want him to be speaking out publicly right now to get some attention onto this case but truthfully what we know is that he picks up the phone and he's able to use one of those cell phone uh excuse me phone calls to call jennifer hansler And because these calls are so rare, did you detect something different in this call? Was he more optimistic in this call? He was, yeah. I mean, the great thing is that we can listen to the recording of the call and you hear the tone of his voice in this call. It is a bit more optimistic than it was the last time that there was a phone call, which was back in December. And that was right after Brittany Griner, the WNBA star, had just been released as part of a prisoner swap uh, that got her out of the country, left him in jail. He was really downtrodden after. After that, Now, there's another American who's wrongfully detained in the co- country, Evan Gershkovich, and he is concerned that there might be a deal that could release Evan and not him. But he has a bit of a more hopeful tone. And the reason that he says is because he's seen what U.S. officials have said publicly about this. I mean, we just heard from President Biden at the White House Correspondents' Dinner talking about, you know, Paul Whelan and doing everything that his administration can to get him out. Um, And I also think that we have a clip from what Paul Whelan said would be his message to the president. Let's just listen to that.
0: Freedom is not free and comes at a price. But the loss of freedom is even more costly, and I pay that cost every day Russia holds me. Please follow through with your promises and commitments. Truly make my life a priority and get me home.
3: Hmm.
11: And, you know, getting him home because he spoke about being in a Russian jail and it's poor conditions, it's forced labor. It's tremendously challenging for him just physically and mentally. So it's great that he has this optimism that we sort of heard in his voice, but when you speak with his family members, they're really concerned about that optimism and how long it can last. Can you imagine?
10: No, I I can't. And, you know, you point out the family members too. So his sister, Elizabeth, was speaking with Erin Burnett earlier tonight. She was talking about He was talking about the way the food is being rationed because of the sanctions and and Ukraine and how they're taking, she was saying they're actually taking the beets out of the borscht before they serve it to them. Mm -hmm. It sounded like they were almost saving them for the next batch. But she also expressed this concern that all this optimism that you hear in his voice, Mm -hmm. that people would get the wrong idea that he was sort of content. Which I found really interesting that there is that concern. Could he sound almost too optimistic to people and make it seem like he doesn't? Need help. There must be, you know, to to your point, Kylie, we think about why certain calls are getting through. It's interesting that this call was able to get through at this moment, and it makes you wonder why.
11: Yeah. And we've seen these families or these individuals who are wrongfully detained use different tactics at different times. You know, we've seen them uh, go in front of the White House and protest and demand meetings with the president. But then when there have been positive developments, we've seen them, you know, really positively say nice things about the administration. So I do think that there is an element of recognition that they need to send different messages about how they're doing or what actions they want to see at different times.
1: And also, Polo, can you just imagine being, I might mean, think about this, wrongfully detained, and other people getting out before you? I mean, that is, must be Do. just- Trevor Reed Two, earlier correct. last year. And now year.
12: with this idea of, of, of a third. And, right. And the, the the hopeful tone, yes, you hear it in his voice, but mm-hmm. you certainly hope that his family is also going to be, at least this gives them a second win in their fight to try to get him home as well.
11: And the other complicated thing, uh, just to add about you know Paul Whelan, is that he's actually being charged with espionage. Mm-hmm. And the Russians take charges of espionage incredibly seriously. And what they expect in terms of any potential deal to get him out, would be, in return, getting someone who is connected to Russia's intelligence-gathering operations. We don't have any high-level Russian spies in U.S. custody right now. So that makes it all altogether, you know, that much more so challenging. So what do we trade? What can, who can well, we trade? we're scouring the globe right now. U.S. officials I've talked to are going to Denmark. They're going to Germany. They're looking for Russian spies who allies have that we could potentially offer up. But they're still working on those deals
8: right now. I, I wonder, you know... The other folks who have been released, especially Brittany Griner, you know, as a celebrity in her own part, right, and there was a lot of public pressure, especially from interest groups who are close with the president who wanted to see her released. I haven't really seen necessarily, you know, at least as an observer who isn't fully in depth in the story, that same sort of public pressure, although the limited polling data I looked at said that the, the, the public believes President Biden should do more. But I haven't seen that same public pressure on this particular case.
11: No, you're right. I think um, it's unfortunate, but it's also a reality. You know, Paul Whelan, he's an ex-Marine. He's sort of more of a normal American, right? Mm -hmm. And Brittany Griner was a star. She's, you know, arguably the best American female basketball player. There was a tremendous amount of attention. And I think we're seeing... A large amount of attention also on Evan Gershkovich because he's a Wall Street Journal reporter and, you know, he is not famous by any means. But uh, when reporters are reporting on, you know, reporters, there's a certain level of attention that's paid. Um, and so that is a sad reality, I think, for Paul Whelan. But the fact that Brittany Griner is still bringing this up. Mm-hmm. She has made a point in her public appearances to talk about the other Americans wrongfully detained around the world and the need to bring them home. She is trying to keep that momentum going, which I think is worth noting. Thank you very much for keeping us updated on all of this. Mm-hmm. OK, up next
1: on The Lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they are looking out for on The Horizon. We are back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it on the lookout. Okay, Polo.
12: I'm going to be uh, on the lookout for a story that combines two of my favorite things, that is of course Mexico and volcanoes. Okay, okay. we didn't know this about you. Volcanoes Strange are our fascination, <laughs> but uh, Popocatépetl, which is the volcano in Mexico uh, the most dangerous one that was actually dormant up until the 90s and then it erupted There was some activity also about uh, 10 years later or so and it has been extremely active ever since but lately though it's even been disrupting some flights so what the Mexican government has been doing is basically been putting about 3 million people on standby in towns and villages immediately surrounding it plus also telling people that live about a 60 mile radius around this thing mm. which are about 25 million people to also keep a close eye on it because there could potentially be evacuations at any point but it's also also disrupting travel uh j- just over the weekend there were some flights in and out of the Mexico City's airport that had to be either canceled or delayed so it's one of the things that's going to be i'm going to be closely watching it i'll hmm. say it with me guys po
7: oh
12: po- oh poll ka
7: ka what oh wow. Wow. <laughs> wow which
12: means uh smoky <laughs> mountain and we're learning more and
1: in fact it is a smoking yeah. mountain yeah huh. okay huh. fantastic you so said to and we're it's very good to know that your hobby is Volcano. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, in Mexico.
11: Good. Okay, but yeah, got it. Got <laughs> it.
1: Okay, Kylie, what are you looking out for?
11: Um, I am watching... There is a Russian minister who mysteriously died on a flight this week. And he was flying from Cuba back to Russia... He had been critical of the Ukraine war and there were some journalists that spoke out about him having conversations with them before he had died, about how challenging it had been to be in Russia during the Ukraine war. I doubt that we're going to find out much more about the circumstances surrounding his death because we've seen a bunch of these critics of the Ukraine war, you know, mysteriously die. I think the Russians, you know, if it was them, if it was the Kremlin behind it, they're probably going to hide, you know, how this went down. But we might learn more about his precise criticisms of the Ukraine war over, you know, the coming days and weeks as people who knew him talk about him. And I think that could be really interesting. Okay, thank you very much for that.
8: Harry. Yeah, mine is not anywhere near as serious as that, though it does make me reflect, which is tomorrow is the anniversary of the series finale of Full House, which took place (laughs) on that date. All right back in 1995.
1: Hold on. You're a big Full House fan? Huge. Oh, okay. I love Full House. Of I also didn't know this. Go
8: ahead. Of course. I'm lo- the theme song, Great Jesse Frederick. Oh. Um, and it's just one of those things that sort of reminds me while, yes, I'm young in some ways, the fact that that was 28 years ago tomorrow reminds me that perhaps I'm not as young. As I like to think, yeah. <laughs> a lot of nostalgia.
1: Poignant, very poignant, Harry. Thank you for that. There's a lot in that. There's a lot to unpack. <laughs> wow.
12: Very wow. deep. Started with Full House, and yep. very deep. Reflection. And went down <laughs>
1: from there. You're right. Um, okay, <laughs> Erica.
10: Um, well, speaking of maybe, you know, sort of feeling your age, I was really struck by a piece in the New York Times this morning about workplaces becoming more friendly to women who are going through menopause. And this push to talk about menopause, to talk about the symptoms, to talk about what it is, what was shocking to me is this is a big effort actually in Britain and Germany where there have been studies Parliament has talked about this. And this is now a thing in other places. So some of the examples that we have seen, so in Britain, um, and this is because, by the way, menopausal women in Britain are the fastest-growing workforce demographic. So they're trying to change the stigma, so they're talking about it more. They're having people in the workplace who are sort of menopause ambassadors, for lack of a better term. So we'll talk about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to get comfortable talking about our changing bodies, friends. So you can talk about menopause to reduce the stigma. Um, sharing with people the symptoms of perimenopause.
1: I mean, it's... Erica, I feel like that you're a menopause motivator. I feel like you. That's you know, like when you go to a bar mitzvah and there's damn people out
10: on the yes, floor, I feel like you're yes. a menopause motivator, and I congratulate you. So, newsflash: this is actually my new job here at CNN. <laughs> I'm going to be the menopause you're going to be offering ice packs yes. in the newsroom
11: yes. to the women yes. that need them.
10: Those are some yeah. of the concessions that are being made in some places. They're giving women a fan on their desks. Nice, so to um, take a little time. And that's also great. To understand when you get that little fog.
1: I can, I I can, can see you have a lot it. to say about this. They wrapped me minutes ago, but it was so fascinating that we, we let you continue. Awesome. Thank you very much for all of that. Thank you all. Great to have you guys here tonight. Thanks. Okay, tomorrow on CNN This Morning, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby joins to discuss the state of flying and whether we can avoid having another round of meltdowns. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now.